0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Hoss Talks FOSS. I'm Matt Yankovic, Percona's Haas, here to talk FOSS with Sergey and Jobin, two of our key support engineers here at Percona who have been working on all kinds of awesome things in the Postgres space, and we wanted to catch up with them and talk to them a little bit about some of the work that they've been doing and some of the recent conversations they've had and presentations they've done. Hi Sergey, hi Jobin. how are you guys doing?
1: Hi, we are good. How are you?
0: Good, good. Yep. Sergey, I'm doing quite good. Thank you for inviting.
2: Me. Thank you for yes. the invite, Mexican.
0: So, you two have been at Percona for a while now, and you've been doing quite a bit around the Postgres space. And so, I wanted to ask you just off the bat, you know, and this is a conversation, you know, so so take this where you want it, you know, what kind of interesting things are you starting to see? from the people you're working with from a Postgres perspective? Are are there interesting, you know, uh, trends you're starting to see and uh, topics that are popping up?
1: Yeah, um, majority of uh, the people currently are migrating from um, proprietary databases like Oracle. Uh, So they are getting trained in terms of uh, the open source and open source culture and how the open source works. Um, So many times uh, the the conflict of culture uh, is uh, more uh, say oracle provides everything completely packed but when it comes to open source uh, we assemble pieces uh,
0: yeah ah. <laughs> so it, it, so people in, in other words so people are expecting kind of this you, you know really polished ui and everything just to work together and they might need three or four different projects that work together? Yeah. And that's where they're running into issues? Yeah. Even uh, when we say uh, uh,
1: the high availability, uh, we recommend this uh, particular uh, framework. Um, Then uh, say they are coming from a world where they have only one choice, Uh, but we we, we have n number of choice for everything, Uh, say backup, at least half a dozen backup tools are there for Postgres. Yeah. So then we we choose the best and give the okay. This works. It should be working perfect for you. Yeah. Then that's, yeah, that. Yeah, and
0: I mean, I, choices choices are good, but they're also paralyzing when you're not used to them, right? So yeah. it's very difficult, you know, to to make that choice. Now, when we talk about you know whether it's high availability or backups, typically we have a recommendation, and th- that recommendation, what is that? Yeah. Well. Yeah, well, we
2: recommend uh, and we extensively use Patroni for the high availability solution, right, Jobin?
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) And for the backups, our preference is PG Backrest, Uh, although we actually do support a few other tools as well. And I actually wanted to pick up on what Jobim said previously, because I actually switched from Oracle to PostgreSQL in 2015, and I was in the same position as a lot of people are now, and so uh, it is, like, actually beneficial for me at the position I have right now to have walked the walk, a walk, like, five okay. years ago. So. Uh, switching from Oracle, like you have an RMAN, right? But then on PostgreSQL side you have <laughs> barman, which sounds similar, but is not Arman actually, right? Then you have PG Backrest and quite a lot of different projects. And then there are forks of projects. The wall-e was rewritten as WALG, and it's an excellent project, but the and everything is yeah, it's a bit of um, like it's a bit of open source in the good and the bad uh, that that entails. Like the documentation might be lacking sometimes, and you have to uh, go and try the waters basically quite a lot. Uh, yeah, but so far in the last five years and um, six years, the infrastructure and everything, every project matured, and uh, as, like right now, I think it is easier
0: than ever to do the switch. So you mentioned um, PG Backrest, right? So from a, a, a backup tool perspective, now you you also mentioned we support other backup tools. Now is that because you know customers just want to use a specific backup, or are there specific use cases that one tool is better than others? Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: So I believe you can.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the PG Backrest is. Is there uh, around for some time? It's matured and it is widely used. Uh, so uh, and that has some features which is not there in other tools. But the other backup solutions are addressing certain specific areas. Uh, say for example, the cloud integration was very good in. Uh, that's what the the Val G was uh, originally uh, targeted. Uh, but the the PG Backrest was targeting on the the, the real uh, enterprise users uh, or I could like customers Uh, yeah so that's a two an entirely different approach but now what we are seeing is all the tools are uh, coming to a common uh, domain of uh, expertise say the the pg backrest is gaining the cloud integration um, step by step now they they have azure and uh, google cloud support yeah. So
0: okay. Yeah. So so what what you're seeing is each of these different backup tools hmm. um, have different feature sets, and but slowly as they mature, the feature sets are getting integrated yeah. between the tools. Yeah. So yeah. there becomes less and less differentiation. Yeah. Now you know, uh, Sergey, coming from the Oracle space, let me jump back to that because this is an interesting perspective that you know we don't normally get here because you know a lot of uh, folks who you know uh, I talk to are been in the open-source space for 10, 20 years. Um, now, I come from an Oracle background way, way in the, the back. So, I, I mean, I remember those days. Um, I have, you know, I think PTSD and I, I, I shell shock from, you know, when I had to handle those the, the, those cases and those issues. But, um, you know, as, as a former Oracle DBA and as you're talking to these folks, besides the um, issues that, you know, just, just, understanding, hey, this open source is different than a single vendor controlled project. Are there some technical things that continue to kind of like, you know, uh, uh, worry or are hard to grasp for Oracle DBAs kind of coming over to this space? Yeah, absolutely, for PostgreSQL especially, like the
2: way, like getting real technical, the way Oracle and PostgreSQL work with memory and the disk and everything like that, they are, Deceivingly similar. Like you have the wall files, it's like the redo, right? Then you can archive them and it's all pretty similar. You have a buffer pool, but now uh, the checkpoints are not really similar, right? The IO profile that the database generates is completely dissimilar. And uh, you you just cannot go and give all the memory to PostgreSQL, whereas you could probably uh, pull that off with Oracle, and a lot of people do indeed. So yeah, just from the from the like sending queries perspective, those are quite similar. But then when you start kind of applying, applying real pressure to PostgreSQL, uh, things start to crumble a lot and conceptually they are different. Um, like the MVCC model is completely different. Okay. It's the vacuum that is, uh, jarring for a lot of newcomers in PostgreSQL. Like, it's not bad. It's not good. It's just different, right? It's completely different from anything that anyone expects who didn't work with PostgreSQL before. So, yeah, coming from Oracle, it's a bit of a, um, as I experienced it, it looked similar. Right, so I actually switched to MySQL later, and I mainly work with MySQL right now. So MySQL is quite different. It's different from Oracle, it's different from PostgreSQL. And PostgreSQL seemed to be similar to Oracle in a lot of places, and logically it was similar. But now there are a lot of details, like a lot of fine print then you have, that you have to understand, that you have to fully grasp. So yeah, that is, uh, can be a pretty steep uh, hill to climb.
0: Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I've seen over the last few years is the number of people who are looking to do that migration. Job, and you said this is probably the biggest area that we're seeing is the growth in migrations. They're they're choosing Postgres because it's similar. And does that lead to people then making this assumption that like I've lifted, I've shifted, maybe I've rewritten some code, but it should just work like the same and all of a sudden you go from Hey, I was able to handle 15,000 transactions a a second. Now I can only handle 5,000 because I didn't tune it right or I didn't properly, you know, do certain things. I mean, is that what we're seeing?
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. First of all, the first part of the question, uh, what is driving the migration? Of course, um, the overlap. uh, Say. Postgres is claiming to be the most Um, feature-rich. So we'll we'll, we'll get more overlap with Oracle in terms of uh, stored procedures and uh, functions. Mm, uh, Say the PLPG SQL, which we have in Postgres, is somewhat similar to uh, Oracle's plsql code so my the and we have very rich data types um, so all those things are um, driving the migration um, the the, the sele- selection comes automatically to postgres but yeah the surprises like uh, uh, something which was working in uh, oracle um, uh, um, is working poor in uh, postgres that's a common very common uh, problem and that happens when we when we move from uh, oracle to Postgres or if we move from uh, Postgres to Oracle, because these two things are entirely different. When we have an application which is fine-tuned for Oracle, um, and if you just take that code and put it into uh, Postgres, uh, th- that may hit on some other uh, edge cases. Like um, Sergey mentioned, um, the MVCC is one major uh, difference. So in, in, in Oracle, we have this undo area where they move the old, old images to an undo space. And that's how they manage the, their MVCC. But in Postgres, we leave that on the same place. The old versions are left on the same place where, it, uh, where the data is stored. So the, the consequences, the inserts are fast. So because insert don't have to do anything. It is, it is uh, create another row and put it there but the the demerit of this approach is uh, the updates are costly the updates is nothing but uh, insert and delete so uh, so the, the things which works uh, in in oracle world uh, may not be that efficient in postgres but there are areas where postgres excels in uh, so especially this insert kind of load and um, yeah we have lot we are seeing a lot of applications where they have complex uh, architectures and um, say when we the, when they write very complex queries they tune that query for oracle uh, say views and uh, queries on the top of views and uh, over a period of time they might have uh, uh, recorded multiple times and optimized that query for uh Oracle, some way it is working there, okay. And when we take that uh, that complex piece of code and put it into uh, Postgres, the surprise comes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I got, I got you. So, so okay. So it, it, it is different, different, and you do have Get to it. tune it and make it make sure that it's that it's optimized. And one of those things is making sure that you're using the right indexes because obviously the indexes between what's in Oracle and what is in Postgres are going to be different. And this gets back to, you know, your Percona live session that you just gave, um, you know, which is uh, talking specifically about the power use of indexes in Postgres and and kind of giving that user perspective um, because there are many different indexes available in Postgres right now, and each one of them has a very unique you know, um, operation and, you know, a unique thing that they're trying to solve. Um, so maybe if, if you can give us maybe the, the, the quick overview of that talk, like, you know, what, what, what did you, you talk specifically about? And, you know, people can find the talk so they can, you know, watch the whole thing (laughs) online, but, uh, give us, give us that quick snippet of what uh, people can expect if they go watch that.
2: Okay. So, um, As we gave the talk, I started talking and Jobin picked up, so I guess we will follow suit here. Uh, And the talk, we mainly targeted maybe audience who is not really experienced with PostgreSQL, and we gave a... An overview of uh, indexes, trying to give specific examples where you would like to use them. Uh, for instance, while preparing and while working on this and while discussing this job, and a real highlight of the talk for me was the hash index, which was for a long time like an ugly duckling in the PostgreSQL world because it was not well logged, it was not replicated, it was not crash safe. Like it was. It was okay. You could use it, but you were uh, documentation told you not to. Um, Like from PostgreSQL onwards, it works perfectly. Like it's fine. So yeah, you know, even if you know indexes, even if you think you know indexes and you know PostgreSQL, sometimes it's
0: sometimes it's worth
2: revisiting basic stuff. Um, So
0: so, let me ask you there, right, right there. So okay, I I come from the MySQL space. And there's a lot of people who aren't familiar with the Postgres, you know, index types. You mentioned the cash index, you mentioned it's not crash safe. You mentioned that you can't replicate, right? So so there, there's there's a few things that, that like right away you're like, oh, I never want to use that. But then you said, Oh, but ten on it works. So you yeah. have to explain now the cache index and what it does and what the benefits are, because you know, now I'm left hanging. And I will go, you know, listen to the, the session, other people will, but let's give them a little yeah, preview absolutely. here.
2: Absolutely. So the hash index is applying the hash function to an entry and it's really simple in that what it does, is it actually allows you only a single operation and equality operation, like it only indexes for something equals something, right? And the length, the benefit here is that uh, while it is limited in the use case, uh, it actually has a peculiar property that the hash function always produces a uniform length of a key. Uh, like if you give it half a tome of war and peace, it will give you 122 characters. I will not, like, I don't know how much exactly, how many exactly, but still. Like, imagine that you are indexing something where you have URLs. Uh, maybe people's names are not a good idea, but URLs, right? URLs can be lengthy URL like the blog post and uh, database of blog posts, right? Crawled, And you probably are not going to look for URLs with the uh, larger them operation, right? So the httpgoogle.com is not larger or smaller than yahoo.com, right? But you want to look for a specific record. and The hash index will be compact. It will be fast. and It has a pretty low overhead of the inserts uh, as well compared to D3. And yeah, so pretty interesting. Like uh, a good addition to the portfolio of indexes that you can use. Again, from the 10 onwards. But given PostgreSQL 10 is what? Four years yeah. now. Probably everyone should check it out.
0: Okay. Okay. Sorry, I needed to stop you because you know you, you mentioned it, you know, and wanted to get everybody here to to, to listen. So okay. So so you talk about hash index. I thought you said cache, but it's hash. <laughs> so you know my 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 bad speakers here. Uh, you know, so from a hash perspective, um, you know that that's that's useful information. But you know, there's also you know your uh, gist indexes and your gin indexes and B-tree, which everybody knows B-tree. It's kind of the standard in uh, most databases. Um, so you know, you're going to go through and you're, you're you're talking about these different indexes and um, in, in how they're used. And so you know, this is an important topic, but people just think I had an index oh. and I'm done. <laughs> Is that the case? I mean, like, like, is there any more thought process than I have this in my where clause and <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and, you know, index it? <laughs> yeah. The,
2: the... Right. Yeah. Uh, Jogan, uh, yeah. if you may, uh, like, absolutely. The default index, as you mentioned, is the B tree. And, like, the more data you add to it, Uh, you cannot expect it to perform as well as it performed before. And especially if your data profile, let's put it like the data distribution changes for no reason or for maybe unexpected reasons, you suddenly may have a really suboptimal index. And the B3 index has a couple of uh, tricks on its sleeve. It's not really specific to B3, but you can build partial indexes covering only some case, right? Uh, but you definitely, even if you are just indexing and expecting everything to work, and it works, like with the NMVP, an early prototype, uh, when you get real data, you might want to consider different indexes. And so you need to keep an eye on that. And I believe Jobin will uh, mention a few other indexes that are like could be useful.
1: Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, like Sergey uh, started. So normally uh, people just create an index and say, yeah, we, I have an index, <laughs> but uh, they're not really worried about whether that's the right choice they made. Uh, the, like Sergey mentioned, the, um, the partial index that really works wonderful in many cases. Uh, actually, Sergey showed a demonstration of how, how it can be optimized. So, because uh, that can have a work loss, the, uh, the, part, um, the the index itself so only certain criteria will uh will be used for creating an index so the index size will become small and um so especially the status codes and things like that that's that's uh, really great yeah and um Coming to the specialized indexes, uh, so we, the, the database are uh, general purpose, right? And po- like Postgres uh, database. So we need um, uh, indexes like a uh, text indexing. Uh, this is uh, altogether a different area of um, specialization. So uh, the general B3 index may not work there um, pro- properly. So, yeah. So the, the Postgres gives this GIN kind of index. That's a Totally different approach to the indexing. And the the keywords are extracted and they create uh, that is indexed. Yeah, that's a
0: so that's like yeah, a full text yeah, full, yeah, index. Yeah. Like so so full yeah. full text searching to search a block of text for a keyword yeah. or two and and
1: uh, yeah uh, okay. any uh, the, the beauty of uh, the the worldwide communities um, anywhere in the world if there is a, a research going on uh, the about some better indexing uh, the first choice for implementation could be on uh, postgres because it's open and free and uh, somebody want to try that on, on the postgres so we have a lot of these kind of index implementations so the the, the bloom index is uh, something really interesting because yeah
0: it's, uh, yeah and uh, yeah so t- what, what what tell us what the bloom index yeah. is what, what, what yeah, that so uh,
1: like Sergey mentioned, the hash index, it prepares one, one hash. Uh, but the problem with the one hash is it can be used only for one column. The one column need to be hashed to uh, one value. But uh, what about the multi-column index? Say multiple columns need to be indexed, uh, uh, need to be hashed. So uh, the Bloom provides that feature. Uh, so it is... Uh, it is similar to signing on the top of another signature. So we'll have a very complex signature. So, once we have that complex in signature, it's very easy to map uh, with uh, 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 the actual data. Uh, and the beauty of this Bloom, Bloom index is that the order of the column is not important. Uh, generally, we have the pr- uh, problem with the B, B3 index. A B3 index, uh, uh, the, the first column, second column, and third, like that, the, the order is important, right, in, in the index because that's how the tree, B3 is prepared. But uh, this uh, bloom index, because it is a hash function, uh, the order of the column is not important. So, so these are the specialized uh, uh, specialized indexes uh, solve specific purposes. Yeah.
0: And so, so I'm guessing that the you know uh, bloom indexes. Uh, you know are are following uh, you know the the yeah, filter. filter yeah 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 library, yeah, right? yeah so yeah 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 okay okay that makes sense now let's take a step back and let's 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 speak to those who aren't necessarily dbas you know in in the space here so i have just started a new application i've chosen postgres as my uh, mm-hmm. database of choice and so i built this application how do i go about what are what should we do to find what needs to be indexes and what indexes should be used like how do i start there what what are the tools and you know walk me through some of those decisions or some of the things you might look for and recommend people do in order to find you know which columns need to be indexed and uh, which is the appropriate index
2: yeah well ideally like if you Not ideally, but if you are only writing to a database, more likely than not, that you might not need any indexes at all, right? So it all actually depends on the retrieval of the data. With PostgreSQL, you don't need a cluster index, right? Like MySQL would probably need. Uh, So you, you just have heaps, like heaps of tuples, and you can insert and insert and insert forever, and you don't actually need indexes. So you shouldn't start with your tables and columns I believe that you should start with queries, right? So you have specific access patterns, uh, you have specific queries that hit the database. Like maybe if your application is doing some kind of a login and it needs to get a page with your customer profile, which gets by an ID from a user table, right then probably that user table needs an index on the ID column, whatever the index type may be. Uh, How would you approach? learning which columns need to the indexes well again i firmly believe that you should start with queries and PostgresQL scale uh, provides built-in facilities for looking at slow queries right John? Yeah, yeah. so the you can set up um, log mean duration statement correct me if i'm wrong to i don't know maybe to zero like do a complete query audit yeah. Or you may use, uh, yeah, or you may, uh, I don't know, poll stat activity, right? Or you can set up pgstat statements, like a really popular extension that just does all the analytics for you. And it will break down the queries and give you the max duration, maximum duration, average duration, right? I If you are brave and if you want to try new things, you can try pgstat monitor from Procona, right? It adds a bit of more new features to the idea of pgstat statements. And you can actually go ahead and try PMM, which uh, builds on top of the data from pgstat statements or pgstat monitor to give you a more of a polished UX UX experience uh, to your Uh, queries in your PostgreSQL database. Like the other talk uh, I prepared for Procona Live with other support engineer was about usage of PMM for PostgreSQL. So you may want to check it out. Uh, But yeah, I mean, uh, from my point of view, you should probably start with this.
1: Yeah, right.
2: Um, Yeah, Jordan. said.
1: Yeah, uh, um, my approach also will be similar. uh, Say A little more Aggressive in that nature, avoid Postgres, uh, avoid indexes wherever possible.
0: Yeah, uh, because well, wait, I I almost heard him say. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry. So I, I the correct there. Yeah, no, no, no. Don't avoid Postgres. Postgres,
1: Postgres is great. Postgres <laughs> is great. Avoid indexes wherever possible, because um, what um, drives that is uh, say. Uh, people first look into the scheme and start designing uh, indexes for that. But the, the, without realizing that the indexes has its own cost. So uh, as we you know, it, it actually slows down the transaction processing uh, because indexes also need to be updated by OLTP, the inserts, update, deletes. And the, the problem won't stop there. In Postgres, uh, uh, the indexes also need to be maintained by auto-vacuum, uh, and the cleanup need to be happening. And the indexes also need to be there in the cache, uh, in, in memory, uh, for a better performance. So it occupies memory, and it is uh, associated, disk I.O. will be there. So uh, there is a um, cost associated with indexes. Uh, so uh, try to live without index uh, if it is
0: necessary, yeah? <laughs> so but wait. So are you suggesting like so. So what you're saying is zero index. You, so you're. At, are, are, well, so. So, I mean, like, I think there's an interesting, you know, discussion here because I can see like the process of when you're doing your application, you're developing it. There's not a lot of data. So, yeah, the performance isn't necessarily going to be. Needed in a yeah. test environment, um, so I can see going zero index there. So would the process then be, you know, collect your you know query log like like you mentioned Sergey doing a query audit um, and setting it to zero like the threshold. So collecting everything and then analyze that and then see what indexes you need based on that. Or are you saying like move to production with no <laughs> indexes and let's let's just be the wild cowboys that we are because we love you know to to, to yeah, test in production. Yeah. Uh, like, where do you fall on that, Joe? But what, what scale do you yeah, fall Yeah, so um, in
1: production also, we, when mm-hmm. we collect um, uh, the customer uh, information, uh, we, we have an a, analyze script. And we see that there are, uh, normally we'll see hundreds of indexes, which is never used because we the analysis report comes with a zero usage. Uh, so uh, those are the areas where we can go the other way we can uh, remove indexes which is not used in real production and save space and memory and things like that at the same time the, yeah at the same yeah, time yeah. we have this problem as well so uh, the you, the creation of index is kind of a continuous tuning um, so the the things which used to work earlier may not work uh, uh, later so we, the, the the index index requests a continuous uh, monitoring and uh, uh, the schema need to be optimized uh, maybe yeah uh, even simple b3 index uh, may later co- need to be converted into partial index kind of yeah, so it request some kind of yeah like Sergey mentioned, yeah
0: okay, so yes. so start with very few yeah, indexes yeah. if any, do some tuning to yeah. figure out what you need, but realize that this is an iterative process, and what you needed yesterday won't be today because um, we all know, that, you know, we totally love to go back in and remove things that we added before and we just don't leave them sitting there um, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> of course we do. Like, you know, what what technology out there doesn't have you know some some weird code that you're like, <laughs> I have no idea why that's in there. And I think that applies here as well. So um, as you implement new features, as you implement new indexes, as you go down these these rabbit holes to tune. Every release cycle of a new application changes the access patterns, which means that you know what indexes are being used or not being used could change at every release Absolutely. cycle. And with uh, the continuous uh, integration and continuous uh, you know deployment, you know that happens now. You know an index you used yesterday might not be used tomorrow, but it might be used three days yeah. from now, um, and that presents kind of a weird mm-hmm. challenge, right? Um, you know, because you know you, you you know you have these evolving you know indexes. So I don't know, maybe maybe we need to figure out you know the the automation to build and remove indexes on the fly as is needed or something. You know, I don't know, um, but uh, it, it is an interesting space, you know, for sure. So, so Sergey, you're in favor of indexes. Joe hates indexes. It sounds like you know, he never wants indexes ever again. You
2: know, you should follow an approach of minimal viable yeah, index, yeah. right? So, uh, just do as little as possible, but not less than it would be, <laughs> uh, you know, m- m- messing up with your performance. But yeah, I see. I definitely see, and I saw in practice, and I created redundant indexes. Right? You can never anticipate. Like, unless you are dealing with like a pure IoT, I believe, stuff, then you will probably not anticipate the amount of data that will grow and how exactly it will grow. Well, where it will grow, right? So the databases, they evolve. And uh, trying to optimize for that before you, uh, like before you... Trying to optimize for a database that is sized in terabytes when you have 10 gigabytes of data is probably not something that should be done like the it, it is a bit premature and uh, definitely the issues will arise like um, but yeah but,
0: I but is- isn't there a trade-off here because i mean like so i mean like you know i'm thinking from the the the, the, the user perspective or the, those who are unfortunately tasked with managing these large systems in production um the question is: As you start to see these, um, you know, uh, you know, applications grow, adding indexes takes time, and it and it actually makes performance problems worse. So, you know, there 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 is some trade off here, right? Where it's like, do I index early, hoping to get ahead of those problems, or do I wait until I need it, knowing that when I need it it might cause a bigger issue than what's happening in production right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like,
2: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there, is, with that. there is a fine line. <laughs> I, I don't think there is a, like, a silver bullet approach yeah. here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think that he should go live without any indexes <laughs> at all, right? I don't hate indexes. I'm not joking. <laughs> uh, but we <they> also Yeah, <laughs> hate indexes. Yeah, you know. but let, let, let's like let's like take the other extreme. Like you take every column, every data, every, every table in your database, and you index every column and every combination of columns in both orders, right? So you will have a lot of indexes, but you will probably not have a quick database, like right? So. Uh, what I think it should be like to comment on the situation that you described, you should probably try to not end up with a situation where you have a burning production and that you have to kind of extinguish with an added index, right? So. Uh, with the continuous integration and the continuous delivery, there should be continuous monitoring as well, right? So you should probably be keeping a finger uh, like on whatever is happening with your database, right? So uh, are the queries kind of changing? Like it's a sort of a living organism, right? Um, it's growing all the time and um, that evolves. Um, yeah, I mean, issues will happen, absolutely. Like maybe tomorrow, some uh, you haven't anticipated the release and new access pattern is now in production and you absolutely have to you put an index in place. But again, maybe 10 years ago when you were designing the schema, you didn't even know that this access pattern would be there, right? So this table was added half a year ago and now we need to add an index there. Like it happens, uh, absolutely. Uh, This probably speaks to the need to test with real data. Like one thing that I see a lot is a really small development database. Like we have a thousand entries there and we run a query uh-huh. and maybe it does a full table yeah. scan. Yeah. Right. But it's fine. It's like 20 milliseconds. Then on production, the right medium records, and it does not run 20 milliseconds. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about it from the, like, you know, let's, 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 let's pick Amazon for instance. It's like, it's like testing on a, you know, Sunday morning at 3am, you know, you know, you know, like that type of workload versus, you know, your black Friday or, your, you know, prime day that just happened, you know, like workload, very different workloads and probably very different needs and requirements on how much data is being accessed when. Right. (laughs) Um, And so I I think that's a very valid point that, you know, testing with uh, production sized workload is important. Now, are there any tools that people you've seen people use? Because Honestly, <laughs> testing applications at scale is a challenge in and of itself, especially on the database side. Um, you, you know, I, I know that there's some some testing tools that you can do to replay query workload. Um, but, you know, are, what's your experience in, in doing that sort of like testing? Uh, Jobin, why don't you, you start? Yeah. With an so. Answer. I'll-
1: um, more than there, uh, a simulated uh, test environment, uh, what we love to get is the real workload data. So like Sergey mentioned about a, a log min duration statement by which we capture actual uh, the, the queries which is executing in the system. And if you look at the new versions of uh, Postgres, uh, that that is the area which is getting improved a lot. Now we have provision for sampling the queries uh, at different levels, say... Uh, uh, queries which is taking more than 100 millisecond i uh, i want a set of samples for of those queries i can uh, configure such a way uh, the 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 parameters and we'll get those queries and uh, and even postgres provides uh, ways by which we can look at the explained plan of those things uh, behind behind the scene so uh, we have uh, real data, real uh, performance data coming out of real perf- uh, production environment uh, and that gives the real picture as uh, so where the things are uh, getting slow or uh, uh, repeated. So, uh, we need to look at uh, multiple aspects there could be a query which is um, uh, very very fast but it could be uh, executed multiple times say millions of times uh, repeatedly so an index on that will give huge benefit but if there is a very complex query but if it runs in a as part of a month end report uh, yeah we we don't have a problem there from the business perspective or from the uh, so yeah
0: But how about, how do you replay that workload? How do you test those queries? Like, you know, how do you you know, like test that in a test environment.
1: Yeah, see, we we, we uh, re- request the end user to get those, those information, like um, the uh, analyze uh, information, uh, explain, analyze information about uh, those things. Um, yeah, and we have Postgres-related uh, tooling, like a PG Badger reports, which which actually parses the Postgres log file and prepares a sample with um, bind variables, everything. We can just pass it to customer. Okay, this is where we see the problem. Uh, please prepare this, uh, explain, analyze, and show, show us. We can help you to improve. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Sergey, any you know thoughts on you know query testing or replaying query workflow? You know, it's difficult. Like I'm not a big believer in the query
2: replay field. Uh, I know okay. there are quite a few tools in MySQL uh, field and Oracle has a query replay capabilities, right? It can record the workload and replay it and give you a nice record. But the problems there is that most of those tools, as far as I can tell at least, they do not respect the concurrency of the queries, right? You do not get the full, um, you cannot replicate how exactly those queries hit your database, right? And how, what was the concurrency? In the worst case, they're just executed serially one after one, after one after another. Right, so that is completely uh, unrealistic picture. Uh, What I think is like a good approach could be, maybe through, like I believe a lot of testing is being done, like QA and automatic testing for applications is a part of pretty much any development process right now, right, so I do believe that at least as one part of that, there should be, I'm not saying that there should be exactly the query uh, like the queries from production, like the amount of queries from production. I'm more towards that there should be a database, a size and data distribution of production, right? So you should probably concentrate on either taking your production data and masking it and like creating a maybe a, a sample of it Right. If you like have a gazillion databases, every, every one of which is really huge, you probably should not be replicating that environment. But if you like have uh, hundred gigabytes of data in production, you could probably replicate it and mask it and maybe uh, hash everyone's names. Right. Of course, do not so, do not violate GDPR. But then, so then you test and you run queries and you see, uh, like, with a new release, whether maybe a new query appears in your query audit that was not there before, or that is now like executing for two seconds instead of 100 milliseconds,
0: right? Yeah. And this is where it's interesting. So, you know, there's this nuance and you mentioned like the QA testing and stuff. So I see a lot of companies that skimp on scalability testing or stress testing their systems. So, you know, they'll run through, like, their test suite, and it will run through, the like, a functional test where it tests all the functions individually. But it doesn't actually stress test the system, which means you never see the yeah, concurrency yeah, yeah. you mentioned. But even if you do have a large data set, the likelihood of you running through and just choosing, like, you know, a, a single string of functional tests actually doing anything that's going to move the needle on the database side to find performance issues is very minimal. Yeah, absolutely. Now, those that do stress tests typically focus on the application. And here's a fun fact, I've actually seen quite a few companies who will make their test suite, um, they'll stub out and they'll create uh, a, a, a false uh, database calls. So, they'll make a call to an API that should go to a database, but then they'll just return the database record directly from that, and they'll always return the same thing. So, they'll get a consistent result. So, their tests won't fail, but they'll emulate the database. Yeah. Um, that and is... so, <laughs> so, you never hit the <laughs> database. Yeah. Is,
2: you know, you are like leaving aside a pretty huge part of your performance testing, like, uh, yeah, that is probably but not
0: what you want to do. <laughs> I, I think part of the issue is, like from a developer perspective, you know, uh, they view databases as commodities in a lot of cases. And so it's a necessary evil. They want to, they want to, they, they would love it if it was just an API call in and out. And that's all they need to worry about ever. Everything else is handled behind the scenes. They don't care what database technology, they don't care what I it, think, it's fast. My data is out, it's in. It's out. It's in. It's out. It's in. I think that you know that's kind of the nirvana state, and a lot of um, uh, architecture developers treat the database like that. You know, just a data store, right? Um, and I think that that causes some of these uh, issues to manifest in production because you haven't thought through all those uh, potential issues.
2: Right, it yeah. could be, but like if you have if you have an SLA for like an API call of your application, behind that API call, you are going to a database. I probably should include your round trip to the database and the query into your SLA, right? So, and if you are stress testing without a database, then yeah, what are you <laughs> stressing, stress testing anyway? So yeah,
0: you know, yeah, it, 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 it's an interesting topic, and it and it gets really deep because you, you know you can peel yeah. the layers of this onion multiple multiple layers deep. Here. I, I don't think like um, I,
2: I don't think that you should be cutting behind. Uh, what I see sometimes is that the database is kind of isolated from the application, right? So the, the application is a user of database, but database kind of provides a service. Like like you mentioned commodity, right? I, I, I don't think that that is a good approach. Like a database, if a database uses a database, if the application is using a database, the database and the schema that the application uses, uh, it's probably an integral part of an application and should be treated as such. And uh, yeah, it's just my couple of cents
0: here. All right, so Sergey, one last thing. Uh, you have a book coming up. What's your book on?
2: Yeah, uh, me and uh, another colleague from support, Vinicius, we are writing the book. And the book surprisingly is not about PostgreSQL. Uh, Since I was learning MySQL here Mm -hmm. in Tarkona, and I had to uh, pick up quite a lot of knowledge from MySQL, I got a chance to write a book that is called Learning MySQL. It's a second edition of an older book. And uh, as I was learning MySQL, I was able to apply that uh, journey into a book form. And yeah, it's it's closing to the uh, publishing date, uh, which is sometime late uh, in autumn yeah uh it's a huge problem huge uh, like it's a huge project i uh, kind of a you know writing a book is a kind of a bucket list item you know uh that right, i had right. and uh, i couldn't mm, like skip on that opportunity and yeah it made my covid year uh much uh more
0: exciting than it could be otherwise <laughs> i understand that i understand that so uh Jobin uh Sergey, thank you for showing up and chatting with me. Um, you know, and you've got I think four sessions from Percona Live that are online, or three sessions, uh, Percona Live online now. Uh, Sergey, I believe you have two. Yeah, right. Um, you know, so you can hear Jobin and Sergey talk about you know different Postgres topics, PMM monitoring all kinds of fun things I would encourage you to check out Percona, uh, the Percona live website or our YouTube channel where you can get all these videos for free um, you know take a look watch them uh, learn uh, with us so thank you guys for for coming on to the the show today and uh, appreciate it thank you thank you, thank you. Um, have a good one all See right you Wow, what a great episode that was. We really appreciate you coming and checking it out. We hope that you love open source as much as we do. If you like this video, go ahead and subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, tune in to next week's episode. We really appreciate you coming and talking open source with us.